Horizon is a zero-knowledge enabled network of blockchains with powerful cryptography tools to ensure security and privacy, along with a growing suite of partners. We're joined today on this just uh, this episode of Just Crypto with Rob, who co-founded Horizon Labs uh, to fulfill the promise of using blockchains to bring a more secure and equitable world. Uh, Rob is also the co-founder uh, and team lead of the public blockchain Horizon. So we're going to talk about that in relation to Horizon Labs. Um, and previously, he has been an advisor to Ave Hero Engine and was also a U.S. Air Force officer and scientist. Uh, welcome to the show, Rob. Thanks for having me, Vanessa. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here. And, you know, as, as we do, as we are a show that talks about things that direct with finance, I want to encourage everyone here to learn more and FOMO less. Uh, so put your wallet away, put your thinking cap on. None of this is financial advice. We're exploring interesting concepts in the crypto world. Um, and we'd also like to say to anyone who is following along live, we do love to engage with people who are here live. If you have questions or comments or thoughts in chat, uh, you know, definitely let us know. We'll get to those. Uh, if you're here watching, please drop a hi and let us know that you're here as well. It's always great to know who's following along live so we can we can engage. I want to give a shout out as well to South Padre Tony. Uh, welcome. Uh, great uh, person from the Monero community here as well uh, joining us. One thing we like to do is to get to know our guests a bit better. And so let's start there. Uh, Rob, share a little bit about your journey into crypto. We all have a unique space and a unique way of coming into this crazy world. How did that start for you? I have to say, uh, I kind of just stumbled into it and it's been a dream come true at the end of the day. <laughs> but, you know, so we'll, we'll just uh, start with the, you know, the end, the end there is, uh, I mean, I, I came in as an early Bitcoiner because I, I love this idea of separating money from state. Uh, so really for the probably early ideological reasons of what the Bitcoin community uh, was founded around. Uh, I was also an economist. So it was kind of cool to see like programmatic money and like I got my PhD in finance, you know, subsequently. But, you know, it, it was just this idea of innovation in finance and economics and decentralizing things. It was just, you know, for me, like mind blowing. And I was super excited to come in. Uh, also politically, you know, a uh, big libertarian. So for me, it was, it was really nice to to endow people with tools to you know take control of their lives, especially their financial lives. Um, and that that was uh, something that just drew me in, and then just kept drawing me in. So it was I um, ended up. You, you mentioned I was a former military scientist. I, I ended up um, leaving leaving that part of my career and going back for my PhD and studying um, actually crypto finance for my, my finance uh, degree. And uh, just do my dissertation research uh, in that area. And it's just kind of dumb luck, good timing. I felt like Forrest Gump along the way um, and ended up launching this uh, Zen Cash thing that's Today Horizon. Uh, and we could talk about that journey. But I mean, really, it, it's kind of like, a, you know, uh, for me personally fulfilling and like just amazing to be part of an industry that I think is super innovative and creating a new future. The thing that resonates so strongly for me is your reason for being here. Uh, so I often tell folks my reason for being here is to separate money from state, to separate banking from bankers. Uh, <laughs> I'm very That's much the second part. I never thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you've got Bitcoin and Monero working on the first part, and then yeah. you've got all the other things like Ethereum, et cetera, working uh -huh. on the second part. Yeah. But you know, you you went from in, in investing to actually founding a, a company. Now, what did what did that look like? What made you think? that you know, being an investor was not sufficient to contribute to the entire crypto ecosystem. Yeah, I guess I didn't think about it. It just kind of happened. <laughs> it's the reality. And maybe this <laughs> happens to a bunch of entrepreneurs. Uh, for me, it was at least my journey was uh, I was getting my PhD and I was studying this stuff. So I wanted to just get out there and, and be you know, an entrepreneur in this space. But more like I, I went and I joined a couple of different startups. And, and what we're calling Web3 today was, was like Bitcoin back then. And um, just started getting involved, uh, involved in, as more than just an investor. Um, and uh, it, it just took off. So Zencash, we, we launched in 2017 uh, when it was cool to launch a cryptocurrency. Uh, not so cool anymore. I mean, there's like different different aspects of that, but uh, it just exploded in, in the sense that, um, you know, there's a strong message around privacy. Um, there's a big demand there. There's obvious utility use cases for where 
you know, people putting their digital lives online, you have to have strong, strong privacy. So the project Zencash uh, really took off and just started getting this community that was kind of demanding more. And you know, I just got swept up in it. I, I did end up uh, finishing my PhD. So that was a miracle. <laughs> like, you know, I, I took a couple of years sabbatical to, to work on this thing and I went back during COVID for it. But, um, you know, it's been a great journey. And, and uh, again, the accidental entrepreneur, but I couldn't imagine like a, a better, uh, you know, better path for myself. Let's tease apart a, a lot of the concepts that we're going to be talking about today. So you mentioned, you know, Zencash. I know you're founder of Horizon Labs. How does that relate? How do those relate to each other? How does that relate to Horizon Global and the, the rest of the entities that are involved? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I could just give an analogy like, you know, Horizon Labs is like uh, Ava Labs to Avalanche. But um, the reality was we, you know, we were a community-based project and we had a whole bunch of voluntary contributors doing development and community growth and management and all of those things. And then realized at one point, like, okay, this open source thing's amazing. It, it is, I, I can't even say it's the future, it's the today, uh, you know, open source is just here. But at the same time, like the, the, the reality is there, there's like an unspoken reality in open source, which is the top projects like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and maybe a handful of others get the best developers or the most developers. And they kind of get this organic funding path uh, where people are willing to contribute voluntarily a lot of different things and resources. Uh, for us, it was a struggle because we weren't one of the top projects. We were just this really organic community project that like sprung up with, you know, based around privacy. And we realized, okay, we've got some real technology here. Um, there's a real path, there's a real vision. And we love our mission. But we need to raise some capital and professionalize. Like we need to bring in professional developers and professional team just to accelerate this thing. So unlike you know the like Ava Labs or something you know Polygon Labs and other projects out there that started with you know the the company first or the company launched a coin or they maybe co coincidental. Ours was Horizon Labs launched two years after the Horizon Network. We raised some VC capital and just started going to work on a product mission. But the reality is, it's kind of we're a protocol development shop that's trying to bridge you know, uh, web two into web three. So it's a really cool mission from my perspective of, I think this is the future. I mean, I'm, I'm certain it's the future is web three, or at least a big part of it. And we're just there. <laughs> we're, we're there to help others come in. And, and that's, you know, exactly where I want to be. So when you say help others come in, like at what yeah. level are you helping other people get involved? Because uh, I think someone could say, well, you know, there's Ethereum. Uh, a lot of people mm -hmm. are building apps on Ethereum. Couldn't they yeah. just hire an, uh, a Solidity developer and get going? So how do you differentiate what you're offering? 100%. I mean, we have Solidity devs. We've done a ton of Solidity dev work as well for clients. So including, so our clients are kind of in two different buckets. So one, three, three different buckets if I really look at it. One is like we, we have an open source protocol that we're, super passionate about. And we think there's there's a really uh, good chunk of the kind of like future competitive space for Horizon. So we're investing a ton of our like private uh, company resources into like you know, making the protocol the best it can be. Uh, and then on just the corporate side, like we have to make money, obviously, because we have a payroll and a burn rate and everything. Uh, so we have, um, you know, with it, like native Web3 customers, which is really where we've seen the most traction, obviously, like you don't have to explain the importance of Web3 to a Web3 company. So we get a lot of business there, at least our biggest you know, source of revenue have been within Web3. And we've recently started tackling this enterprise, the enterprise marketplace. That's kind of a long tail. And, and I'm not sure exactly how it's going to play out. And we could talk about where I think enterprises are going to kind of on ramp into this industry in a meaningful way, but it hasn't happened yet. Now, like, almost every large enterprise has dabbled. They'll probably keep dabbling and eventually they're going to be here in full force. But we're, we're kind of here now, like as Web3 experts, you know, we're working with some of the biggest Web3 clients in the world. Like Yuga Labs is our biggest client over the last couple of years. And we've done some phenomenal uh, projects and worked for them. But then like that is just experience that we want to parlay into ultimately bringing the rest of the world into crypto. What do you think it would take for enterprises to go from dabbling to an adoption, even a small adoption? My fundamental thesis is every enterprise in the world will be here when all their customers are here <laughs> or, or when a large part of their customers are already in Web3 and they're just going to come in because, you know, like the, some of the early DLT, like distributed ledger technology, um, enterprise use cases are, were built around the idea of making back offices more efficient, like carving out some of these corporate functions, making them more efficient, maybe connecting coalitions. That, that's cool, probably useful. Uh, but the reality is, I think most businesses will come in, they'll dive in, they'll have to come in. When they realize that you know 75 percent of their customers are already in web3 they have web3 wallets they can engage with them in a more meaningful way they can earn additional revenue sources by coming in and engaging within web3 
that hasn't happened yet, but there's actually, it's kind of a lead lag effect in the sense that customers or users lead and then the, the, the businesses lag. I think we're in that transition, but it's still going to take some time. But there's a whole variety of like a very pragmatic things we could talk about that are like barriers to enterprises coming in that I, I think there's companies like mine and others and consensus and, you know, uh, the, some of the other companies I mentioned that our job and reason to exist is to reduce these, these barriers and frictions for the world to come in. We can we can definitely chat about the frictions, but I'm curious because you say uh, enterprises will come in once there is end user adoption. Isn't there a chicken and egg problem here in that without a, a suite of interesting apps for users to engage with, there's really no reason for them to go and tackle the effort to create an Ethereum wallet when they could just get a Gmail account and log in with Gmail to a Web2 service? Oh, for sure. But you don't own your Gmail account. Google does. Right. And then there's there's a variety of other reasons there of like, okay, what's the whole benefit of Web3, in my opinion? It's 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 really individual sovereignty and ownership. So you can own resources, you can transfer them, you know, permissionlessly around the world. There's composability. So there's kind of like an open Ethereum brought the virtual machine onto a blockchain, which is amazing because now you have this kind of infinite rich suite of applications that are possible. Basically anything you could write in you know, like a, any kind of program language, you can write into Solidity and you can launch an application. So it's kind of this like uh, maturation phase, I would say, where, you know, some of the earliest applications were kind of simple ones. Let's do tokens, let's do like NFTs, let's do some DeFi stuff where you can do swaps and the borrow land and then synthetics. Uh, and there's sort of this pyramid of, of uh, applications and ultimately utility that's being built. But the the real message is, uh, individuals own their own their own uh, you know economic life on chain, right? They they can do whatever they want. Application developers from all over the world can come and compete and like launch whatever applications into the world's computer without asking anyone permission. Super low entry costs. You don't need to go raise a ton of capital from you know Silicon Valley VCs in order to launch a DApp. These things I think have their own agglomeration and like cumulative effects that they take time. And like th this could be one of those arguments where okay, Rob, like. Yeah, you can wait forever. <laughs> you know, you're going to go broke. Uh, the industry is going to go under. But the reality is, like, Bitcoin was the first most important application in the world, which is decentralized money. And then you've got like a, a world computer with Ethereum, and then all these other applications. It's just a matter of time before the applications become more useful, less you know, less frictions for adoption. And as more people come in, it drives their own network effects, right? And then people have more of an incentive to come. Developers have more of an incentive to come. And VCs have more of an incentive. And I know with these these kind of like financial cycles of the the bull and bear markets, uh, it can leave people disheartened in the bear markets, and then the next bull market comes, and everyone's like over exuberant. Uh, I think it's important to like strike a healthy balance where you realize like it's going to take years, guys, for us to do this, but like when I think like the next generation, like think like literally 10, 20 years from now, will Web3 be here? Like, absolutely. I have zero doubt on that one. Do you think this desire for self-sovereignty is actually something a lot of people have? Or, or would they prefer to be able to call up a customer support agent and say, please help me reset my password? <laughs> yeah, so it's a total mixed bag. Uh, it, it, and it's not like, a, like an if or either or scenario. I think that uh, the reality of Web3, and this is where maybe like, you know, the early Bitcoiners or maybe the, the maxis of our industry kind of lose it is they think in black and white terms and it must be all this or all that. I think the reality is going to be, it's going to be a hybrid future. You're going to have a lot of people, like I always use my mom, I throw her out there, you know, sorry, mom, um, that she's not going to be, you know, managing her own private key. She doesn't want to, it'd be irresponsible to give her a set of private keys, you know, and there's going to be a lot of users like that in the world. But then it's a question for like, uh, you know, so, so then you have early adopters like me, you and, and other like early, early uh, crypto people, um, because we want it, we're seeking it out. It's valuable to us for whatever reason. Um, and then you have waves from there, but the waves come as the product guys come in. The product guys make um, the applications, the products, the interfaces, the key management stuff just a lot easier so that really like we can open up mass markets to the technology. But I think when people are really going to come in a mass, it's just when we have applications that work better and when they have a, a pragmatic need for them to do it. But it probably won't be like self-custody for everyone. There'll probably be plenty of custody solutions like Coinbase Custody or like others that are there are legitimate co companies. They're publicly registered. You know, they, they're publicly traded. I mean, they're they're uh, registered with whatever licenses they need. And there's just more trust there. I'd love to get your thoughts on a couple perhaps controversial items that have come up lately in the cryptoverse. The first one being uh, Ledger and how they've tried to bridge this gap between fully self-custody and, and having some of that support system in place. I'd love yeah. to get your thoughts on what's happening there. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of backlash on it. <laughs> I mean, that's, <laughs> that's kind of the, the reality. And, you know, I, I'm, uh, you know, people like to complain, I would just say in general, like there's always yeah. people that complain. Uh, but we need entrepreneurs to try lots of different things. And I, I, I don't think we're necessarily, like it would be almost like a miracle to just kind of guess the right entrepreneurial mix of, of product, uh, you know, like freedoms or product dimensions that everyone's gonna be happy with. Um, there's gonna be a lot of other experiments, like the ledger experiment, you know, is one of them. There's gonna be plenty of others and there are gonna be different types of ways to manage your keys, whether it's just like using the Brave browser and having an integrated wallet, or if you want like a hardware solution that has customer support, like there's gonna be a variety of different things. I can't wait for the decentralized customer support. So guys, like anyone, entrepreneurs out there, create a decentralized customer support tool that uses some token to reward, you know, honest and um, productive support agents, please. I would love to open up customer support to anyone in the world to participate, you know, um, to make a Web3 solution to it. Like, who knows what's going to happen? But I, I think the, the future is going to be a mixed future and it's not, it's probably not going to look like any one of us can imagine. I actually love that perspective because it says it's just a series of experiments that are happening and something will land. Exactly. Um, and, and I think uh, my perspective on the ledger thing has been very much from uh, the you're betraying the trust that I placed <laughs> in you, uh, which is a lot, a lot of the community. Yeah. But also, as you say, like we're very small right now and right. there's a lot of adoption still to come. Yeah, exactly. And that's an, an example of like understanding your customers as a product, right? And, and if your customers are demanding like self-custody, obviously with a hardware wallet, <laughs> and they're demanding like a high level of privacy and, and there's the trust there, um, you know, I, I get it. <laughs> so, but um, that was it. Yeah. I was say, the other thing that a lot of people have been uh, becoming aware of recently is that a lot of protocols that say they're decentralized are really just a big multi-sig that a couple of folks are on. So you could talk about Chainlink or Polygon yes. or Arbitrum. Yes. Um, yes. And so one, I'm curious on your thoughts on that, but two, mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious how Horizon Labs and, and the chains that you have fit into the whole uh, spectrum of decentralization. Yeah, so I, I will I will just repeat those words you used. Decentralization is a spectrum. It's a process. It, it's kind of like, um, you know, uh, the way we look at it is, it's in general, if you have to just make a declaration, I would say more decentralization is probably better than less, but it really does suit the product and needs of, of what you need, you want it for. So um, a lot of crypto, like you said, is just like big multi-sigs. And like as a company, we have a lot of multi-sig accounts. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, we're, we're guilty of this. We're not guilty of it. I mean, this is just, it's a better way of doing business anyway than previously like having a bank account, in my opinion. So it's kind of a process going from like bank accounts is completely centralized to multi-sig wallets to like actual cryptographic protocols to just enforce uh, consensus without any intermediaries. Uh, we release a variety of different products and protocols that kind of run that gambit as well. And so like we have like the Horizon main chain as an example, just to, to bring it back to, to my world. The Horizon main chain is massively decentralized. In fact, we subsidize decentralization on chain um, by actually rewarding people who set up independent nodes. And we have a lot of them. We have like over 40,000 nodes on the network. How valuable is that? I don't know. <laughs> We've had 100% uptime forever. Um, that's cool. But it, it also imposes a burden on the network in terms of relaying transactions to the peer-to-peer -peer network. So it's a trade-off. But we wanted massive decentralization on, on our, our core chain. Then we have sidechains. And the sidechains that we have, like the first like round of sidechains that we have right now, are those that have like a, a so there's a snark circuit. And sorry for like any like jargon I throw out there, but like a zero-knowledge proof circuit it enforces chain consensus on the, the side chain by sending a certificate to the main chain. There's a prover on the main chain that um, says like Boolean output, true or false. The, the chain state, um, you know, the, the transitions of the chain state on the side chain were, were valid, correct, cool, it, it, nice green you know, check mark and, and everything is good. Um, that now snark circuit just by design, by construction has to have like a, a fixed number of certifier nodes on it. So you can see we went from like massively decentralized main chain to like a side chain that has like certifiers on there and the certifiers is different mechanisms we can use to like make them independent and, you know, reduce the, the risk of like someone hijacking it. But like the ultimate dream for us and where we actually uh, pointed our original product vision was to have a completely decentralized side chain that actually does like recursive snark proofs for like all chain state and like anyone in the world can validate a snark proof versus these special certifiers so it's like for us it's a journey and not to like ramble too long on it because we went from again the world of bank accounts to multi-sigs to decentralized blockchains to like 
side chains that run specific types of like runtime environments on them that have certifiers. Ultimately, the ultimate dream using cryptography is to make the entire architecture completely decentralized. Now, you, you dived into a lot of the technical details and, and perhaps yeah, some sorry. people may have heard about like zero <laughs> knowledge proofs and you mentioned, you know, ZK Snocks. Uh, perhaps, you know, a lot of folks watching may be interested in like, what is the 10,000 foot explanation of mm -hmm. what is zero knowledge proof? Why is it interesting? Why is everyone talking about it? What capabilities does it bring that you wouldn't just have with traditional blockchain tech? Yeah, so just maybe the the uh, explain that like your five explanation for zero zero knowledge proof is uh, you you prove something to the world without revealing what you're proving. So it'd be like me saying I'm over 21 years of age without actually showing you a driver's license, just giving you like a certificate that shows you a proof that says, yeah, green check mark, Rob's over, you know over uh, 21 years of age, you can buy a beer. We uh, call those wrinkles, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but then there's like the pragmatic, like where Zcash deserves so much credit for bringing ZKPs into uh, the world of blockchain was um, I could send you, so Rob could send Vanessa some Zen or Zcash, and um, the world can see that a valid transaction happened, like if you look at a block explorer, uh, but they can't see any details. You can't see that it was me sending, you receiving, or the amount that I sent to you, right? So. That's an amazingly powerful uh, tool that now, like our, our company, Horizon Labs, um, it has you know, focused on extending into like other aspects of, of data privacy um, on chain, which I think is absolutely critical. It, and that goes to like why is it important? Is uh, if we if we win in Web three, and if the world has like some percentage of economic activity going on chain, which means on a public like information commons, uh, it must be strongly encrypted. Uh, it must be. Um, and, and, you know, the, the beautiful thing about zero knowledge proofs is not just that you can you know, prove that something happened, but now uh, you can actually do things on top of those proofs without even seeing the data <laughs> of, you know, underlying the proofs. So it's kind of an amazing thing where um, you can have like sort of composability of information without seeing what's under the hood, which I think has to be the case for the future. If we're going to have like artificial intelligence training, you know, um, your private data on like a blockchain or public ledger, or if we're going to have like, I don't know, uh, credit ratings derived on my on-chain activity without revealing my identity, like you have to have this like type of data structure that allows you to perform operations on it without revealing it. Yeah, it's very interesting. The, the example that, that the Monero folks often mention is, you know, you go buy something from the grocery store, uh, why does the grocery store need to know how much money you have in your bank account? Like that's not a exactly. thing that happens today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or the fact that you you know go to the you know somewhere else and use your money on something else, right? I mean, the reality is like our, our financial footprint is really uh, a mirror into our lives. Like it, it reveals everything. It, it you know with the right tools you could see everything you do in the world with you know just kind of mapping your financial transactions. And the idea that this should be open and public um, is kind of insane. So let's talk about privacy in the context of something I was seeing that was recently announced from Horizon, which is you're stepping back and deprecating shielded pools. So yeah. Zen will no longer be a privacy coin. Uh, why is that? Why are you taking that step? And what impact does it have for the vision that you have around you know, private transactions and private composability? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, our community uh, told us to. So we kind of, <laughs> you know, uh, we, we're a community project. And when 90% of the community wants to move away from that, you know, that particular feature, then then we do it. Um, but the, the pragmatic reason was that um, we've changed from being a privacy coin to being like an L0 uh, scalability play uh, with privacy. So what we have, what, what that means is uh, the Horizon main chain is basically like a proof, um, like a... Uh, um, like a, a proof settlement layer it is the way to look at it. So basically, um, all the applications that will be built in Horizon will be built on you know, side chains. Like the L1s of the Horizon ecosystem will be like side chains to Horizon that actually perform the applications, whether this an, an EVM, like we're launching an EVM chain now, or like a privacy coin. Like a, a new privacy coin in Horizon today would launch as a side chain with that as its, its number one feature. And then the the L zero the Horizon main chain would just receive a proof of everything that happened on that. So it just didn't make sense for like a settlement layer like we have to need the you know the coin anonymity in it. And then we just have the pragmatic reasons that there's regulatory crackdown in this industry like crazy. And like why have you know like all these different things like being built in the ecosystem in terms of all these different chains that use the settlement layer as a proof a proof layer. 
to, to kind of have the entire ecosystem banned from exchanges and banned from like products like crypto.com and stuff like that. Like our, our users and community just wanted more access to the rest of Web3. Um, and privacy is still a big part of it. So like, for instance, we're launching uh, Eon, which is an EVM chain right now with like a suite of ZK tools that we're, we're launching into it for privacy applications. So it's just happening now. Like it's just this kind of like technical nuance of like bumping it from the L0 to the L1. And at the L1, you're gonna have a ton of privacy apps. Yeah, I think it's it's the uh, meeting of the idealism with the real world sometimes that is a struggle. And it seems like you're trying to thread the needle between those two. That, that's exactly right. And like there's technical reasons as well. Like we have massive like um, database because of like all these like ZK proofs that are being generated from like just the coin, coin anonymity transactions on the main chain. They're bloating the main chain. So we actually need to solve that problem. Like we have main chain bloat. Whether we do that with like some you know snark recursion or whatever, but the first thing was stop the bloating. So we stop the bloating by deprecating the shielded pool. And and the shielded pool itself with deprecation, all the previous private transactions are still private, right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So there's no like reveal or doxing of like any transactions or anything like that. You just remove the ability of creating new ones, which is important because then it's just like bleed out over time. As you're talking about kind of layer zero and the approach with sidechains, I'm curious how much you've dug into Polkadot and Cosmos, which are two ostensibly other places where they also have like layer zero like functionality. And yep. how do you differ from what they're offering? Yeah, uh, so I mean, we differ with our interoperability protocol. So we use snarks to network chains together. Like that, that great description you gave at, um, at the, the intro here of what is Horizon, like this zero knowledge network of blockchains. That is different. So we're very similar in the sense that we're, we're kind of like an app chain ecosystem or L0 ecosystem where you just create a bunch of different chains that are networked with each other. The way we do networking is much different than the others. Uh, and like our approach to our architecture is different. What I can say though, is that we're all onto the same vision and we will probably be like over time merging and integrating with each other. Like the, the vision that, that we have here, like at Horizon, isn't that we're, we want to like replace Bitcoin or Ethereum or or even Polkadot or Cosmos, we want to connect with it all. It's like we want to create like a system of like massive connectivity. So we have like a, a true alternative to like other like more controlled systems in the world. Uh, so, you know, the long story short is um, the way that we do connections is different. And and that and, and we could talk about the nuances there. Like Polkadot has kind of like a, a like a set number of uh, slots that you can you can take up to run a side chain. Uh, on, on Cosmos, you have a particular architecture with certifiers and so forth. We're going down like the pure zero knowledge route. So we're kind of like a zero knowledge uh, application of like, you know, like Cosmos. Would, would the approach you're taking be similar to Ethereum and their suite of L2s effectively settling on Ethereum, assuming all their L2s actually use ZK technology, which, which they don't. Uh, right, right, exactly. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, that's actually a pretty good analogy. And, and what I can add to that is, so uh, we're, we're launching uh, Eon, which is like, it's like a mini version of Ethereum within Horizon. Uh, and that like that Eon will be an L1. And then on top of that, we can even like have L2. So we are, we've already integrated the Optimism stack, so we can do L2s on Eon. Um, so it'll be like, like a, a version of Ethereum, but like where all the proofs settle onto the, the main settlement layer, like I said before, like our, our main chain. So, yeah. That's fascinating. Could you see, I'm just trying to piece this in my mind as I haven't been as exposed to some of this technology, but I'm wondering if you could see an L1 chain from Horizon become a parachain on Polkadot and if that's an interesting <laughs> way of communicating between the two ecosystems. Yeah, so what, what I can say though is like right now where our engineers are looking at both Substrate and Tendermint and you know the Cosmos SDK for like integrations there. So it's something that um, I, I bet, I predict, and my company's betting is that uh, the industry is just going to be you know, like interoperability is like the core thing for this industry. Like you've got interoperability in runtime environments, or maybe start like reverse that. Say so it starts with runtime environments like Ethereum, we've got an EVM, you've got Wasms, you've got like other types of like virtual machines that are launching ZK, VMs, ZK, EVMs, and so forth. They're all just different runtime environments for applications. And like the next step there is to network all of them with each other. So that's what we've been focusing on for years. We're finally going to market. So like Horizon's not one of the top 20 blockchains in the world. We've been in R&D mode for years. And now like we're finally going to market. Uh, Elon's the first important runtime environment we're launching. So we're catching up in Web3, launching an EVM. But from there, it's just a starting point. And then from there, it's you know, like our, our big task next is to make our SDK 
really usable and like something that like the Cosmos ecosystem would be very familiar with uh, so that we can really start tapping into the power of the, the massive scalability we have. Who are some other partners that have already signed on to build on the, the Eon blockchain? Um, we've got a lot of them. So we, we're doing it in a, like a three-phased rollout. Um, so the way we look at the phases is phase one is really just infrastructure. So we want to make uh, like an identical or very similar experiences you would have. If you're a developer, you want to build an Ethereum or on like Polkadot or Polygon, we want you to have the same experience. And what that means is you need certain infrastructure like RPC relays or endpoints. You've got um, dev tools like Third Web. You've got SDKs for like gaming devs. You've got like the optimism stack for LTs. You've got like all these like components, like oracles, like data indexers and so forth that devs just need, right? That's our that's our phase one. And like all of our like phase one goals are green check marked. We're good. So like mm -hmm. as we're launching, we'll have all of those partners there. And, and like partners would be like Anchor as an example. Um, um, it is like a like RPC endpoint or infrastructure provider for us. We've got like swaps lined up, and, um, and then we've got like as we go into phase uh, two and phase three, it goes up that like value chain. So then you've got like other protocols coming in, so like the DeFi protocols, NFT marketplaces, and so forth. Uh, as we get to like uh, phase three for us, and phase three we're rolling out around the September timeframe is going to be like specific dApps. So like kind of a wave of like um, the Web3 developer acquisition and the applications coming in. Now, as we're differentiating, because like our um, product marketing guy, like is Spencer is like famous for saying, you know, like, let's stop, let's stop trying to differentiate the Eon. Like it's an EVM and EVM is an EVM, right? It's meant to be literally an EVM, right? It's identical to like the other EVMs that are out there, even uses the GoApp client. Um, so like, uh, the underlying infrastructure is not differentiated. It's what comes on top of it that's differentiated. And for that, our cryptographers and crypto engineers have put together some really cool libraries and tools for, for developers, like private voting for uh, DAO applications. So like using SNARKs so you can cast secret ballots. I think it's super cool and, and uh, interesting. Um, other like crypto APIs, so you can very easily like in incorporate ZK uh, technology into your applications for privacy, whatever you're trying to do with your DAP. Uh, things like that, we're going to cluster those types of privacy-oriented DAP use cases within Eon. And I think it's, it's that that's going to differentiate us. It's interesting because even DeFi has like a lot of need for, for privacy um, in things like, you know, stop uh, transactions where people can actually hunt your stops if they know who you are and what's out there. Exactly. Or front run your trades. I mean, front so run like, your trades, yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, like all the predatory things in, in uh, like traditional finance uh, happen in DeFi or will happen or can happen in DeFi. Uh, we need privacy technology out there for anyone who wants to protect their, their financial lives. Yeah, and what's fascinating to me is you're, you're building the application layer that's on top of it that enables dApps to actually tap into privacy almost selectively when they need it, rather than everything is just private all the time. Yeah, and if, by the way, like selective confidentiality is the term that we use. <laughs> so it's like, you know, we're, we're like a really big, in fact, like we, we had a really big R&D effort around like how do you do selective confidentiality at the smart contracting uh, layer for the protocol. Um, and, and Google has a really interesting like uh, homomorphic encryption tool that we we're looking at to see like is this sufficient? It turns out it's not mature enough yet. But like what we're doing is like at the applications, like we're providing certain tools that allow devs to you know allow their users to to use privacy or not to use privacy, and and that will be their choice. Yeah. So I mean, I think I think it's interesting that you you're offering those kinds of functionality when you say the EVM itself isn't differentiated. Um, does that mean it's got the same scalability challenges as maybe an yes. Arbitrum or Ethereum would have? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and that's why we, we solve it differently because uh, we can have like a thousand EVMs in, in our network, right? So that for us, it's about horizontal scalability and vertical scalability. And, and I think the future of Web3 is going to contain both of them. Absolutely. Now, I think horizontal scalability works great from, say, a Cosmos perspective where each app chain has 10,000 TPS. Mm -hmm. And effectively, you can, you can do lots of stuff with that. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't work as well when it's, you know, a couple dozen TPS, which is <laughs> where Ethereum is right now. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you wrestle with that challenge? Yeah, so I, I mean, it's really uh, TPS is, is uh, like a bandwidth requirement for particular apps. And the way that I view it is, uh, like, I don't know, like maybe 90%, I'm just making up these numbers, by the way. There's some majority of, of applications that don't require high throughput, right? And those will build on, um, you know, EVM, like just pure EVM. So then you're going to have L2s for where you need more scalability or like more like throughput where you can like batch transactions. Um, 
those can happen on the same chain, like same chain with this L2. And then when you have like you want additional like um, horizontal scalability, you can keep launching more chains. Now the key is these chains have to be able to have the same communication standard. Uh, and that's what we have. We call it our, our cross-chain transfer protocol, CCTP. And right now we're working on a sidechain to sidechain protocol, which allows, we've already uh, built it to the point where you can pass messages between chains. Next up is to be able to pass digital assets between chains and then have the main chain itself actually uh, be like the arbiter of the chain transfers between them. So it's kind of like a trustless bridge, which is, I think, pretty amazing and innovative for the industry and where like our core competency will be. Like when you ask, What's the one of the differentiators between us and like Polkadot or, or Cosmos? The way we do that cross-chain transfer is really important. And the, and the reason is that we have zero knowledge proofs. And if we're able to use this like public settlement layer as like the arbiter of like in, kind of like a this big mesh network, and maybe that's the wrong term to use, but like a big network of blockchains that are passing, you know, information and maybe data between them. Maybe you have like an Oracle feed coming off of one chain, like Eon is being fed into like an app chain that, that launches that just is DeFi and pulls the information from there. Or maybe you have like a single app chain that does like swaps. So like all these different chains are like sending their digital assets into it to swap in a common environment. There's a lot that can be done there. And it really all comes down to the cryptography of how you do the transfers. Compare IBC, which is Cosmos's way of transferring with what you're building, like how is it different because um, at the at the high level, I'm I'm hearing yeah. there's a lot of things that are the same, right? You have general message passing, yeah. you've got assets yeah. that can transfer back and forth. Yep. Uh, so so in IBC, and IBC was a real pioneer here. Was it is that if you have a chain that wants to network with other chains, you run like a light client for the other chains, right? And you have to predetermine that at the time of launch. Um, so it's kind of this thing. I mean, it works really well in the sense that if you're launching a chain, you've got like dozens of other chains out there, you know exactly what they're going to be. You, you build that into your system you know, at the time of launch and you, you can connect with these other chains. Whereas ours is really meant to be um, you know, based on a communication standard and not one that you need to actually know ahead of time what chains you want to connect into and not one where you even need to run um, you know, the infrastructure like a light client for the other chains that you want to connect with. You actually leverage the, the you know, public main chain for that. So it's actually extremely scalable. Now, like I say all of this, it, that's our architecture that we're building right now. But where we stand today is that we're launching Eon, right? So that's, that's cool. We're launching Eon, and we have this like you know cryptographic protocol for you know passing messages between maybe like multiple versions of Eon. Um, but still, like we have more development to do to realize that vision. That's fair. What would you say would be success for the overall ecosystem if you look out a year? Are you measuring it in terms of number of DApps, number of transactions, some other metric, uh, number of wallets, maybe? Yeah. So we have to. We have like. Formal KPIs as an org. Uh, I don't know them offhand, but I can tell you what they consist of. <laughs> they consist of like active wallet addresses, TVL, like all, all the metrics that you, you would find in like a, any other EVM ecosystem we have. The way that we're, we're doing our launch, maybe to be conservative, is, uh, and I think we're, we'll blow it away, like at launch, is um, we're, we're, we're setting our like measure of success to be like the median uh, EVM chain. So, like, are, are we better than the 50th percentile chain that's out there because there's hundreds of EVMs, right? So are we at launch or within, mm -hmm. actually within 90 days of launch better than over half of the other chains that are on the market? I, that's how we're, we're baselining ourselves. And then when people are evaluating like where to launch a DAP or where to come and engage with crypto, how do you differentiate? Like a lot of the stuff you've talked about around privacy and self-sovereignty and the ability to pass between multiple chains, it's, it's fairly esoteric. Uh, as yeah. a user, I'm not sure I would get that immediately. Yeah. And as a as a DAP developer, I might say, well, how many users do you have? What's the TVL and liquidity that I could tap yeah. into? Yeah, that's exactly right. So like, no one's going to care about like these esoteric arguments. <laughs> this is this is almost like academic in 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 the sense is, um, yeah, it, it's cool to look at the numbers and you know the 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 possibility of what can happen here. But the reality is people are going to want to go to where there are other users and where where there's liquidity, right? So we have. Uh, multi-phase plans just like any other project probably to like drive these things into our ecosystem you know for instance like uh, potential DeFi funds that might launch within e within eon to bring in tvl to bring in like an intelligent like allocation mechanism for other to support interesting protocols that launch with us uh we you know some some of the things are like uh real or like old school like we just have a really friendly, helpful team, you know? So like, if you, <laughs> if you want to build with us, like, you know, like we're friendly, friendly people that are super helpful and we want you to be here. So, I mean, like 
this is kind of in a way like um, some projects are handicapped by their scale already like great problem to have but like when they have like thousands of other applications there they really can't focus on those on the margin right and unless they're huge deals that, that they'll focus on for us like we're uh, a new project and a new chain uh, being launched and we really want to curate a great environment for our developer users so that they can have a great environment for their users uh, so we're, we're very hands-on uh, we'll also have grant program, like the usual suspects of this type of thing, like grant programs, a DAO uh, for allocating its grants, hackathons, all of these other like developer user acquisition stuff. Now, hopefully all of this like does spur like like um, a kind of a critical mass of liquidity and usage that then brings others in. Now we have this other thing, we call it our flywheel effect that as a company, Horizon Labs, part of our strategy is to have a public ecosystem like this where we have user acquisition. And then the other part of the strategy is like an enterprise strategy to drive like enterprises and their users into our ecosystem, right? And then these things kind of build on themselves. If we have more enterprises, it'll drive more regular users. If we have more regular users, it'll, it'll be a great reason for enterprises to come in, right? So it's kind of a, a what was it, cart before the horse or chicken and egg problems <laughs> where, you know, um, it, it, it requires a lot of work at the end of the day. And I just think that we have a fantastic team and we're happy to be in the game. Where would someone go if they were a developer and they, you know, wanted to get involved, wanted to explore what's available? Like, is there a particular launch date where a lot of the grant programs and stuff will be uh, shared? Or yeah, so we're, we uh, we've launch windows <laughs> versus launch dates. Our, our CTO convinced us to do that. Um, so we we basically have um, at the end of this month, we're going to officially launch uh, the alpha version of Eon, and then roughly a month after that will be the beta version. And then September, maybe late September, maybe early October would be the like the full launch of Beyond. Now we're ratcheting up the different programs that are available. Like our alpha launch is really like a community launch. We're doing this for the community and like we're just gonna have like the early adopters in the community using it and it'll just be kind of a fun thing. As we get into beta and then the full production launch, um, we're kind of ratcheting up like uh, different types of programs. Uh, there's gonna be a DAO that launches, the DAO's gonna be running like all the, all the like grant programs and, and uh, as a company, we're doing hackathons. We actually just completed our first hackathon. Like it, it was on the the test net that we had pre um, pre mainnet, uh, but it was fun. It was cool to see like developers coming in with different uh, different ideas. Will each of the side chains have their own like protocol or, or token, gas token? Um... Um, so they can. Uh, this is actually funny because on Discord we we're just debating this. Unless that was you on our Discord. <laughs> uh, so, okay. <laughs> the the way it, it works right now is um, we we have an SDK where you can launch a EVM chain, and the EVM chain uses Zen as the the forging stake, you know, for security, uh, and then it uses Zen as the um, the gas transaction fees for for computation uh, on the smart contract platform. Um, but it's all configurable. Um, so you can actually um, you know, modify the SDK and launch your own chain. Uh, what isn't configurable is the transfer protocol. So basically if you wanna send a, like a zero knowledge certificate back to our main chain for it to be proved, um, you must add Zen. But you can have your own like gas token on your chain or your own staking token. So like you can launch the Vanessa token on the Vanessa chain and that could be used for staking, it could be used for gas. Um, you just have to also add Zen every time you want to send a certificate back to our main chain. And I feel like we also need a couple of lawyers to meet Gary as he comes and says hi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can't wait for that, Gary. Uh, how do you how do you thread uh, the, the needle here on this particular one, where you know you're building protocols that allow some of these things within the uncertainty of the regulatory environment in the U.S. Yeah, it's interesting because we're uh, we've been a U.S. company and we'll probably stay a U.S. company as long as we're allowed to. And I hope we don't get kicked out. <laughs> you know, that'd be kind of a shame for innovation in the U.S. Um, but I, we're also a European company, so yeah, U.S. U.S. parent, but we have a European sub and we have like actually half of our development team out in, in Europe. Um, so we're going global is what we're doing, and this is why we're actually launching a DAO is just to make sure that the project itself stays completely global the way it should be. Um, and it's just a process, the, the way that I see it. So like we as a U.S. company have to abide by every U.S. regulation. It's just the, the problem is there haven't been, you know, there, there hasn't been, there hasn't been clarity. And I think there's been uh, what's perceived by the industry as a hostile environment. I'm not a lawyer, so I really can't opine on these things. I really don't understand regulations you know, like a, a specialized lawyer would. 
Um, but I hope the U.S. gets its act together, and I hope the U.S. provides like legislative clarity, regulatory clarity, and like we realize that this is one of the most innovative industries in the world. Why wouldn't we want it? You know, at a large amount of that activity in the U.S. Yeah, for sure. It definitely makes sense. And I know a lot of people are moving, you know, overseas to try and get some of that, that clarity. It's hard thing to hear yeah. you say that you're staying in the U.S. as long as you can, um, because I'm based in the U.S. Like, I'd love to have more Web3 places that were available, um, you, you know, just for us to grow our own industry. I know. Yeah, exactly. And think about, like, uh, so much infrastructure for Bitcoin and crypto is actually run out of the U.S. Like, a lot of miners are out of there. Silicon Valley, New York, they have some of the best developers in the world, like working in Web3, like so much VC capital flowing into Web3, or maybe more last year than this year. But still, like, there, there's such a, a massive infrastructure for innovation in the U.S. It really is one of the most, if not the most, uh, innovative countries in the world at scale. Um, and it'd be insane to not have like one of those innovative industries flowing into or like uh, continuing to operate there. So I, I, I'm sticking with it as long as, I mean, unless, uh, you know, the shareholders you know, overthrow me and say we must leave the U.S. Uh, in, in, unless or unless the regulatory environment forces us to, uh, we're staying in the U.S. We're actually, we have an office in New York City. So like we're, we're very much plugged into the New York um, you know, startup scene, I, I think, uh, you know, culturally, it's amazing to, to have like the, you know, the startup culture that we have and like the VC, VCs we have or US VCs. So like we're, we're really happy with it. We don't want to change that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, you were talking about enterprise earlier, and I'm curious what enterprises are looking for in a blockchain platform that's different than what your, your regular developer would be looking for. And, and how you contrast what you're offering to efforts like uh, Hedera, which is uh, an industry consortium has built kind of their own blockchain platform. Yeah, exactly. I, I could tell you what um, enterprises don't want. <laughs> so, so that's kind of like the inverse of what they think they want. I could tell you what they don't want. They don't want cryptocurrencies with volatility. <laughs> they, they don't want um, you know, decentralized systems that anyone in the world can join and, and do whatever they want anonymously. Um, they, they want regulatory clarity. Um, so I, I think a lot of enterprises have throttled back their uh, investments into blockchain, um, spe specifically Web3. Like a lot of enterprises were, you know, spinning up Web3 experiments for like loyalty programs or like other like NFT-based projects uh, based on the last bull market. Like there was a lot of enthusiasm for it. Now what we're seeing is a lot of that enthusiasm has died or trailed off. I mean, there's still, when you look under the hood, you realize like what does enthusiasm in, in an enterprise mean? It means like human beings that work in that business that are enthusiastic for Web3 um, and they've convinced their bosses to run experiments with Web3. Um, their bosses may not be as happy with them now, but um, there's still like a lot of Web3 enthusiasts in, in all over the world, even working for the US government, right? They just aren't the decision makers right now, even within the SEC, this is like Web3 enthusiasts. Um, so I think as as enterprises come in, they're gonna want things that like um, control over their infrastructure. They're not gonna, and by control over their infrastructure, I mean, they're gonna wanna run the nodes or maybe participate in a consortium where they know exactly who's running their nodes um, for it. So like who, they're going to want rules for who can actually publish information or transactions to that particular chain or set of chains. So again, like access controls, they're going to want like privacy or selective confidentiality type of features in the sense that they're not going to want the rest of the world, like their competitors to know everything that they're, they're doing on chain, right? Like they're not going to want to give away competitive intelligence um, because they're broadcasting things on chain. So they're going to want strong privacy. And for sure, like I said, um, to kick this off, they don't want volatile cryptocurrencies um, anywhere touching their users, right? So like they're, they're not gonna want their customers to have to um, deal with Bitcoin or ETH or Zen, right? Like because the volatility is nuts and like they don't want to explain to their customers, oh, sorry, you lost 90% of what we forced you to get into, right? Then, you know, a year from now. So th this is a mix of things that where I think they'll come in is um, much like the early days of, of the like of networking, like every business realized, okay, networking is important. Let's set up an internet. Um, again, the wrong reaction, but you see the instincts are the same in that they want control. They, they want access uh, or access rights to be controlled. They want the infrastructure to be controlled. They don't want to give away anything to the, the their competitors or the rest of the world. So they, they looked insular and they built these intranets. Uh, and then they realized the public internet is where, where all the action is. And I think that's exactly what's gonna happen in Web3. And we're probably near that transition point, I would say. We just need to do a better job as an industry to, to bring in, like cultivate uh, important reasons for enterprises to come in. 
and it's a battle. Like we have a team that does this, and it's it's a battle. Yeah, because I I imagine a lot of the uh, concerns that they have are reasons for them just not to do blockchain at all and yes. continue with what they have. Exactly right. Yeah, and but they would love blockchain that's like perfectly regulated, blessed by regulators, and doesn't involve cryptocurrency. They would love that, you know. But like, you know, it's tough to to get something like that. What would they get out of that? So if there was that mythical system that had all of that, why would they use that over a, a database that they could, you know, back up somewhere and distribute around the world? Yeah. So I, I think well, there's a few bunch of different reasons. Probably one is they want to look innovative. Uh, so it's kind of like this, like the different stages of innovation. One is like. Uh, pretend you're innovative. <laughs> and I think this is like one of those those areas where enterprises will, will, you know, they have been launching DLT experiments to look like they're innovative, at least paying attention to the, the innovations. Uh, I don't think they're very useful. But the other extension of that where it does start to become useful is when you're you're coordinating some sort of activity outside of the, the boundaries of your firm. So if you're like coordinating with your competitors with like an, in, an industry consortium, maybe that's useful, depending what you're trying to solve. Right um, now, where these fail, where they've broken down in the past, and you can see the value for like a logistics uh, network, you know, so like um, for s supply chain provenance or coordination, maybe it's interesting to coordinate across competitors or something, or at least maybe the nodes in the supply chain. But the thing is, you have to get critical mass. You got to get them all there on chain, right? Otherwise, like it's like a, a omitted data problem where you just don't have uh, data for your your uh, logistics network. So it's just not as useful. And that's where some of these other experiments have just broken down. Uh, but I think the the real answer is going to be. Uh, so we went from like the fake experiments to look innovative. Not fake, sorry. This, this strong word. The experiments to look innovative to the maybe some like actual utility with consortium chains to ultimately where I think it's going to be useful is when like all their customers are on chain anyway, and they want to engage with them in different ways, whether that's on a metaverse or whether that's just like, you know, airdropping something to the Web3 wallets or seeing what they're doing on Web3 because the customers allow them to by like, you know, allowing them to, you know, maybe you get paid to allow, uh, you know, a business to see certain information of, of your on-chain history, maybe anonymized, right, with tools that we could provide. Uh, and then it starts becoming interesting. And then businesses come on chain because they can earn, maybe earn more revenue by being here or like engage with their customers more effectively. Awesome. So it's a, that, that move across different industries, having some composable standard that you could track or do whatever you need to do with, with a, a consortium, but then ultimately connecting to the, the public Web3 in some point. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, by the way, like, not, let's not forget, like, the power of open source and the composability of the smart contracting world is imagine, like, other developers coming in and, like, building um, applications and services that benefit your customers on your behalf. Like, this is like a normal, like, a, a standard platform model, right? Like, and this is why businesses love to own a platform and, and like, connect, you, you know, buyers and sellers. But imagine, like, like, platforms that do the best are those, like, an app store where you have all these developers in the world contributing applications. Web3 is kind of like that. Right, and it's just an open environment where people can come in and add value for each other. Yeah, we just haven't gotten to the point where we've got the curation of all the dApps in a way that's trusted just yet. Exactly right, but I think that's another business opportunity. So, I mean, thanks for the idea, Vanessa. We actually one of our one of our revenue guys uh, loves that idea of like a curated dApp, DAP uh, marketplace. Uh, it's interesting. It's not like um, like a Bitcoin native would never think about that. Like, but normally, but this is I think a great way to bridge in for like you know, other users that maybe just aren't comfortable with a completely anarchistic environment. They want like a modicum of trust. They want a, a company with, that has some brand behind it, you know, or, or has developed a brand for trustworthiness to curate something for them. And, and I, this is a great opportunity for entrepreneurs. Yeah, and I think, you know, even if you're uh, hardcore into like verifying it yourself, not everyone's going to go read the code of the open source contract that's out there. Um, not everyone can. No, exactly. No, that, that's exactly right. So, like, I, I, this is just the way the world works. And, like, human beings are, you know, I hate to say this, like, fancy chimps. <laughs> like, it's just like we're, we, we follow the herd. Like, it, it's nice to know that, like, there's a, you know, a brand that has some credibility where there's like, human beings that you can contact and hold accountable if something goes wrong. Just want to shout out to a couple of folks who dropped into chat, uh, getting a little low from Daniel, who says, go Horizon Go. Um, and NSL, who's here. Uh, supporting you. Uh, if you are in chat and you have a question, uh, we, uh, we've got Rob's full attention right now. So if you have any questions around privacy or Horizon or any other work that they're doing, uh, drop it there as well. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about Coinbase's um, project base, uh, which sounds you know, very similar to uh, some of the work that you're doing with Horizon Eon. 
in terms of, you know, it's an EVM, it's an L2 based on Ethereum, but it's likely to have its own set of regulations. Mm-hmm. What do you think about Coinbase base and how does that compare? Oh, I love Coinbase. I, I will say that. <laughs> this is, uh, I think they're pioneers in this industry. And I think Brian Armstrong and the team that he has there are some of the, the most like, uh, you know, trustworthy players in, in the marketplace. So I, I love what they're doing uh, in the sense that it's great that they, um, they've done so well in the centralized exchange marketplace, bringing people on chain or bringing them into crypto, first of all, to give them access to these digital assets, then to expand the list of digital assets and go Zen, Zen's on there, that's cool. Um, but then like for them to take the next step and say, okay, like Armstrong has a very clear vision. He wants everyone on chain in the world, right? So it's like you start with the simple like in, you know environment, like a centralized exchange and everyone, everyone understands that it's easy. I remember in the early days, it was literally, maybe even today, it's just literally just a buy button, buy Bitcoin, right? I mean, it's super simple, right? It was way better than, than Gox at the time. Um, and then- For many reasons. Yeah, for many reasons, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, and especially because of the brand that they build of like trust, credibility, and just doing the right thing, not taking shortcuts. Uh, and now to extend that vision or to, to extend the their evolution to the next step of the vision of getting people like on chain with base, I think it's fantastic. And I think they're going to crush it in a number of ways. We'll see though. I mean, like launching any kind of platform is always a risky bet for any business. And I'm sure they're going to have different incentives and constraints um, on how they go to market with it. Um, we know we know the team there and we've talked to them quite a bit. Um, in fact, like as a company, we're, we explored it to see like, would this be a good platform for us as well? Um, you know, or maybe do something with Horizon, right? Um, now, uh, I don't know exactly like if or what we'll end up doing with Base, but I, I'm a fan of the team behind it. I think they're great. And I think that you know, sometimes like just having the right team with the right mission is really 90% of the battle and then the go to market. I don't want to minimize it. Go to market is really hard and operating or executing on your operations really, really hard. But I think they have a good crew to do it. Do you have a perspective on Ethereum L2s? As in, uh, which do you think are long lasting? Which types of technologies do you think are going to be sunset at some point? You know, rollups versus EK? That's a really good question. Um, right now, so I'm, I'm sort of like a, um, I try to be agnostic until I, I learn more on things. I And, and there's some really um, interesting players out there that I have a lot of respect for. So everything from like the Optimism stack um, and some of the, the important projects that have launched there to like ZK rollups and just like other ZK technologies to, to scale Ethereum. I, m- my intuition is that there's probably uh, a role for like all of them <laughs> in the sense that um, they, they all add value in different ways. And uh, they probably have different reasons for different applications for which they're, they're better suited than others. Um, so we'll see as of right now, I'm agnostic towards like, Will there be a particular winner with a particular like flavor of technology? Um, I don't know. And right now I'm betting no. <laughs> so for instance, like with us, we'll probably have like um, optimistic rollups and ZK rollups uh, on Eon uh, as an example, just because like there's probably a world for both. I mean, we're, we're taking like the gaming angle with the optimism stack and we'll see maybe like maybe more financial applications with the ZK stack. I'm just not sure. Interesting. As you look five to 10 years out, how many L1s do you think will still be strong, viable businesses? You know, they might, many others might still be there as kind of zombie chains, but how many do you think the market has room for? That's a really, really good question that we we uh, philosophize on very, very uh, with anxiety all the time ourselves because we wonder like, will Horizon be one of these? Like, it'll probably be um, like in the grand scheme, like a very small percentage of chains, right? That end up be, like, capturing say 90%. They'll probably be one of these really, like if you look at like, uh, I don't know, like what's the, like a Gini coefficient, but for like number of chains, right? Versus chain activity or something. You'll probably see like 90% of the world's chain activity on like 10% of the chains, something like that, right? Like a really big inequality in terms of like usefulness of chains. So maybe there'll be 10, 20, 50, maybe a hundred different types of L1s that are important for different reasons. Um, and then there's going to be probably thousands of other chains from there that might have different niches. So not to say that they, you know, there won't be room for chains to be important or valuable. Like maybe they just serve like a particular market. But I do see a need for a lot of heterogeneity in the sense that there's this balancing act between like network effects, agglomeration of liquidity developers, but also hard jurisdictional requirements sometimes, or just like preference uh, preferences for different users. So maybe there's like room for a China chain. Maybe there's room for you know like a 
I don't know, um, like or not even a room. It's kind of a man, man mandatory. Like we talked to some um, like uh, fintech companies in Africa in each country has its own jurisdiction. So they want like a chain per country within the network just because they have to like configure them regulatory wise differently. Right. So there's probably room for a lot of them, but I still think there's, there's going to be really like strong inequality where maybe there's like, again, like I said, 10 to a hundred important ones over time. Um, the important ones though, will be those that conform to common standards and make the, the interoperability between them or the networking is frictionless as possible. How important do you think bridging is between changes? The chains. Some chains are very uh, self-contained. Other chains uh, are very much about bringing the world to them. And I think Ethereum's done the best of bringing multiple different assets in. Yes, I, I think critical. So uh, like I said, I think that the chains that win in the future, like the ones that win, are going to be those that, I, that do interoperability and bridging right. Uh, now, bridging, I think, is, is we have a big problem in bridging. And I, this is like... One of the big problems that we're trying to tackle is this like chain to chain, like uh, you know, communication has to be, from my perspective, you have to remove the, the risks that are there now. Like you need to remove the risks of like, I mean, not to name names for sure, but like some bridge, I mean, bridge is the biggest vulnerability in our industry, I, I would say. And anytime you have a point where certain people have like private keys on multi-sigs, that's a vulnerability. And these people have access to hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. Uh, flowing between uh, chains. I think this is unacceptable in the long long term. It's fine for now, but as an issue, we have to have more like cryptographic proofs and fewer people in the in the loop. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Uh, one thing is you were talking about the diversity of chains and the plurality of chains that you got me thinking that creates an anti-fragile environment itself. Yes. Bitcoin maxis like to talk about being anti-fragile, but if Bitcoin was the only crypto, that's a pretty fragile case, in my opinion. It, it sure is. No, I, I totally agree with you. And I can't tell um, like what part of the Bitcoin maxi argument is kind of just like trying to make Bitcoin more valuable because they own a bunch of it or because they really believe <laughs> in network effects. And like network effects are so strong that you can't have any competitors. This is what shocked me. Was I, I was an early Bitcoiner as well, right? And um, I got in because I, I really enjoy uh, permissionless innovation. Like to me, this was like like a you know a philosophical point that I loved about Bitcoin. And like I would argue uh, Bitcoin to gold bugs all the time of like, guys, what what is wrong with you where you don't want more competition? <laughs> you know, like, like are you just trying to pump up the price of gold? Well, now I see the same thing in the Bitcoin crowd. So like the the gold bugs that hated Bitcoin are just like the Bitcoiners they hate Ethereum. <laughs> you know, it's like it's just shocking to me that like so clearly they're not in it for the same reasons that I was. Where I want to see a lot of innovation. Like uh, we have no idea what's going to work. And like to your point, something to be anti-fragile. Well, number one, you want it to be heterogeneous because you want a lot of different experiments because we don't know what's going to work. Um, and then like you don't want single points of failure. It's like what if you know some hash function used by Bitcoin, you know, is, gets hacked or something, right? And then like the entire system goes down, right? So there's plenty of reasons to want a lot of different competition and these redundancy within the industry. Yeah, absolutely. I was listening to um, Michael Saylor did a, an interview series maybe a couple of years back with uh, Robert Breedlove, and he was talking about all these possibilities for programmable money and getting really excited. And I just had this thought, have you used Ethereum? Because all <laughs> those things are like happening right now. Yeah, no, exactly. My team right now is exploring ordinals as an example. Just, I mean, we, we do re kick off research spikes all the time just so we know what's going on in the industry. But I mean, it's like, it's like you're forcing uh, programmability onto Bitcoin. And that's fine. Like, I want to see, uh, I think I want to see Bitcoin evolve. Like, I can't tell, like, even for myself, do I just want it to be static and stable or do I do I want it to do everything? I would probably prefer that it remain static and stable, by the way, because I prefer Ethereum and I prefer other like, <laughs> virtual machine-based uh, programmability versus, like, on chain, like forcing something, you know, to, you know, with like op return code or, or something like that to, to force transactions on chain. I prefer not to have that. Um, so anyway, that's just my take on it. For all the folks who are in, in the crypto world, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of the conversations come through in Discord and Telegram and different places. Uh, what do you think most folks are missing or getting wrong about the future or where the industry is going? Well, I think one bad problem we have is, is in a way like a negative incentive problem in our industry is um, because we have, um, so in order to have a decentralized network, you have to have a cryptocurrency. You have to have some way of doing like asymmetric programmatic payments that just happen automatically in order to have a decentralized network. So like 
having a public blockchain without cryptocurrency to me just doesn't make sense. Maybe someone will figure out a different way one day. Uh, but because you have to have a cryptocurrency for a decentralized network, you now have this like tribalism where every, people are backing networks just because they want to get rich, right? Just mm -hmm. because they've gone and bought the token or whatever, and they want it to go up 100,000 X, right? So that's the wrong reason to promote technology or products in my opinion. And I think we have this negative problem. We create this like tribalism where now all of a sudden you're like antagonistic towards other projects because you want your, you know, bag to go up. <laughs> it's um, pretty sad. And then it's also, uh, it's just bad incentives and bad reason. Like, it's not like I use, I don't know, um, Spotify because I own a Spotify token and I want to get rich, you know, by more people using it. Uh, use it because it's a good product. Right? And I think that it would be nice to have better product development in our industry and less like tribalism based on speculation. That's fantastic. And I think that's a good place for us to, you know, perhaps start to close the discussion. Rob, you've been very generous with your time for us. Is there anything that you'd like to talk about that maybe we didn't get a chance to address? No, Vanessa, I, I appreciate your time and, and thank you for doing this. Uh, I, the last thing I always close off on is um, I'm always available. Well, not always. I sleep as well. But I mean, if, if you want to reach out to me, uh, you probably got my Twitter handle already. Obviously, we're doing this um, live stream. So um, there's plenty of other material. Go to our website, horizon.io or horizonlabs.io uh, and join our Discord. Like I'm literally there every day, Discord, Telegram. Uh, our team's really good. Like I said, we, we have a lot of really nice, good people that just want to help in our community and our team. So, you know, just come, come and chat. Awesome. We have all those links down in the description below. So, if, you know, please give Rob a follow, follow along the, the, the Twitter accounts for the various different Horizon properties. Also want to thank everyone who popped into chat. Oh, um, hi, Soker. It looks like you got here a bit late. Uh, Prospector as well. Uh, thank you for engaging. It's really awesome to have you on this journey with us, learning a bit deeper behind the, the price into actually the team and the technology and what the strategy is. Uh, Rob, thank you for your time. Thank you, Vanessa.